podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This World Cup and now this is Lloyd Williams charging for all he's worth. Oh, it might work for Wales. They're going to score under the post. And it's Gareth Davis who's been one of the stars. Welcome to another special Rugby World Cup episode of the Attacking Scrum. The Rugby World Cup is in full swing. Things are about to get very, very nervous for Wales. And uh, we thought, what better opportunity to take a nice break, uh, a nice deep breath before the end of the pool stages and the knockouts by chatting to the author of a fantastic new rugby book called Remarkable Rugby Grounds. And uh, there's nothing I like to get become a real nose about more than uh, than great grounds and stage around the world so a big welcome to Ryan Herman how are you Ryan? I'm very well thanks um, lovely to meet you Jed thanks for having me on. No oh, great to have you on now we're going to go on and talk about some of the uh, some of the grounds in the book how many are there in total in the in the book it, it, it looks like over 60 or so. Yes 80. Um, we're 80 wow. And actually they could, uh, we might come on to this later on but there's, a, there's about half a dozen which I really wanted to get in that didn't make the cut for different reasons partly because some of them we just couldn't finally get the right images but I'll happily sort of tell you about the ones that didn't quite make it. Well, if Rodney Parade in Newport wasn't on it, it should have been. And uh, and I'm going to give you that as, a, as an advanced freebie. So whatever was on the long list, make sure that you tell me Rodney Parade was on was on it because it is, of course, the home of rugby. Just, I'll, I'll happily say Rodney Parade was on there. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, and yes, yeah, so you've, you've written um, Rugby's Remarkable Grounds as well, which I'm, I, I would definitely check out another time. So before we get underway, I kind of wanted to... To ask, like, what is it that that makes a, a ground remarkable for you? Um, I think, yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I think it's kind of partly if I think about what the best, and actually, I mentioned this in the book previous to this, the football grounds book. And actually, my favourite ground stadium in the world is a principality, which I know sounds convenient because we're talking about it right now, but it is actually in print, so that, so that I, can, I can back that up. And for me, it was about three elements. One was uh, location. So if you think mm. about it, I see this most wonderful location. I think it's the proximity, it's the atmosphere. Um, again, it's pro- proximity to the pitch. Um, I think those two things and the fact that you've got um, a focal point for usually, I guess, for smaller grounds, if there's a focal point for the support. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I think I think those two things that the location was a real, real key thing behind that, but also the atmosphere that a place can generate. Um, and I feel, for me, it's kind of principality of everything you want. Also, I guess the infrastructure around that is that you've got um, loads of places to eat and drink. Uh, so you're not in a kind of a ground that's in the middle of nowhere as well. Because there are some wonderful grounds in the world, but some of them aren't necessarily in the best positions. So you feel like you've got to get there kind of, you know, an hour and a half beforehand and there's nothing to do. So I think yeah. everything about that is kind of set up perfectly in terms of uh, location, in terms of being in a city where it's great fun a great city to go to to experience a sporting event anyway let alone everything else that's around it and yeah it's just it just feels like the perfect marriage of everything really yeah I, it's a it's a really interesting one because you know in recent years I, I've had a bit of a moan on here about the atmosphere inside the stadium and I think that's you know it's nothing to do with the stadium because we've all been there on on days when it's when it's bouncing and it is one of the best places to be but it's more to do with the kind of you know I think a lot of Fans have been priced out. Obviously, the rugby hasn't been particularly good the last couple of years. And I think that, yeah, that affects things. But yeah, certainly one of the most remarkable things is it's not just like it's in the middle of a town. It's in the it's an international stadium in the middle of the in the middle of the capital city, which, you know, you get all of that buzz 
around you there's this because there's so many people in the city who aren't even going to the game but they're just there in amongst it uh, and and it is a special place on match day um and sim- similarly but, but the thing that likened it with twickenham was <clears throat> i think it was over in the book the best time for me the best time to experience it is actually one of the club finals not mm. to go to an international again the same problem of there's a lot of you know, and it's, a, it's a familiar gripe with, with twickenham too many corporate too many people turning up as sort of i guess tourists if you want to call them that and a lot of them are just you know, quite tanked up beforehand anyway. And it's almost like the game's passing them by. Um, and you think also the cost of going is, as you say, quite a few people who would otherwise really love to go there have been priced out. So, so yeah, yeah. I think there's that, that, that challenge as well. Yeah, it was a really weird one, actually, because I went on a, like, with it in a work capacity to Twickenham a couple of years ago. And I did the whole, like, car park thing, which I'd never done before. And I found it really odd. Like, yeah. you know, kind of turning up and everyone eating you know, canapes and drinking champagne out of the back of uh like, you know, I, I had a message from the client saying, oh, can you pick up, can you pick up some serviettes on the way, on the way to the ground? I was like, I was like, you know, I've never stopped off to buy serviettes before a rugby game before, you know, like packet of fags maybe, but not, um, yeah. but not serviettes. So yeah, it, it is, it is an interesting one, but I agree with you actually. It's uh, Twickenham is, um, uh, who were we talking to the other, I can't remember who I was talking to, whether it was on air or just a general conversation about the atmosphere, like the Middlesex Sevens and how brilliant that used to be as just a great big, you know, a great big coming together of all different rugby clubs from around the country yeah. um, and creating a really good environment. Yeah. And yeah, it's, 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 obviously there's other challenges with Twickenham as well as getting to and from. And I guess the thing with obviously with Cardiff is you, you'll happily hang around for a couple of hours after the game mm-hmm. as well. So I think if you're Twickenham, if you're trying to get back after a game, um, and you're thinking, I'm, I'm in a bit of a rush here. I need to get back into town for you know, in half an hour's time. Then you're, you're stuck at the t- station for a good hour or so. So it's, I think sometimes they can take the edge off things as well. You can have actually quite a good, good experience at a game. That journey back away from that, which takes an age to get, <clears throat> sorry, an age to get back home. Suddenly that kind of it, it dulls the experience somewhat. Yeah, no, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And when you're drawing up that shortlist we were talking about, I, I, so you, you, know, you kind of mentioned there some of the, some of the things that went into it. What what were the other considerations when you were choosing what uh, what made it into the book? Um, well, I think yeah. Well, I think when we initially we draft we draft up a list, uh, I, I knocked up a list to begin with, and there's certain ones you think they're they're, they're kind of the gimmies. But I think the most one I, the thing I liked about doing the the football grounds book was actually the ones that people aren't necessarily familiar with, the surprises, and that's as much of me trying to find those places and, and finding somewhere thinking that's amazing. That I think oh, look, there's hopefully a lovely story behind that. Um, one of the things was to get as many different countries as we could. We didn't want it to be just about um, the home nations, about France, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, although there's quite a lot of that. Um, so it's trying to trying to tell, tell a story about how rugby's played around the world. Um, so within that, I think trying to find as much variety. And when you turn each page, it should be that each of these grounds is noticeably different. It isn't just all big new steel structures. Um, that was the thing that we're very keen to sort of try and do with football and to some degree replicate that with rugby. Um, with rugby, I think that the grassroots, we've used probably more grassroots grounds than we did with football, um, particularly with Wales, for example. And really trying to say it isn't just about Twickenham or the Principality mm-hmm. or Stade de France. These are the, the heartlands of rugby um, and where rugby is more, you know, this thing of a bit sort of cliche, but it's a bit more in the game is the, the role that these the ground plays within a community. And I think there's some wonderful examples of that um, that we have from Wales. Yeah, we're definitely going to come on to that. So what I thought we would do is, because I mean, there's so many grounds in there, as you say, 80, 80 grounds in there, many 
people will be familiar with. And as you say, there's lots that they that they won't be. So I'm going to start with some of those that our listeners might know uh, might know a little bit a little bit about, and then we'll go on and talk about some of the other ones that are a bit more obscure and a bit further afield. Uh, so the first one I want to start with is uh, is St Helens in Swansea. Now this is a ground that many of our listeners will have watched many a game at. And uh, none more so actually than our than our one of our regular co-hosts, Yestin George, who uh, who grew up watching uh, watching Swansea. The, the thing that I um, that I really uh, really enjoyed reading about this did Dylan Thomas really win the Swansea Grammar Mile Race? As an well, that's just that's a story. That's a story that I've had read. And um, I think with all these things, you are trying to verify all these things and, and trying to double double check everything because there is that danger that they kind of. You see something, I think you see something say Wikipedia, for example. I don't think it was on there, but um, <laughs> I hope it wasn't. But it's one of those things, if you see it on there, well, okay, it's, it's, somebody's typed that on, and then can you verify that? Um, so, so yeah, I'm sure, I'm, 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 I think with some of the cases, obviously, you then send it through, and Frank, who's the editor, would sometimes come back and go, are you sure about that? Um, but I think with the Dylan Thomas thing, because we, we wanted to get a picture in as well, um, and he's a big fan of Dylan Thomas's works that kind of particularly appealed to him. In some cases, it was Frank coming to me and saying, we should mention this because I've had a look at this as well. I think St. Helens was one that he particularly had a fascination with. And I mean, it's the most extraordinary location. And yeah, the more we looked into it, the more the, the, more the story becomes richer and, and more wonderful to tell. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also slightly fascinated with places that have multiple sports there and not just like oh yeah. you know the odd football stadium that has a rugby game but something that is clearly dual purpose for for cricket yeah. and cricket and rugby I think that adds to the charm as well would you agree yeah and I think obviously that's when I, I remember growing up as a kid the Garfield Sobers scoring the six sixes was one of the great yeah, Malcolm sports, Nash yeah kind of equivalent to like the one four seven break or something like that and or score you know a, a nine data um yeah, and there's a. I was trying to find a bit of commentary. It says it's going down. It's sort of, I think it's on its way to Glamorgan or whatever. There's some line about that they say that he's hit the ball so far out the ground, and that was one of my memories as a as a kid. They showed like his sporting moments, great sporting moments. That's one of the moments I always sort of remember as, as a kid was Garfield. So it's happening in that in that ground. So yeah, um, that's a, 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 a absolute sport moment of, of proper sporting history. Yeah, definitely. I, and like I say, I think, um, yeah, it really appealed. And you mentioned in the book as well, you know, the fact that obviously similar Bramwell Lane, you know, hosted cricket until into, into the 70s. And uh, and yeah, I just I love those those kind of things that, you know, perhaps you don't get as often today. And, you know, with, with kind of purpose built stadia and, and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, that was really interesting. And, you know, I suppose it's um, what I found quite interesting with that as well is there's lots of rumours that, you know, the Ospreys might end up playing at St. Helens, if not regularly on a, you know, on a, on a more regular basis. And I think that, yeah, there's, there's, it's weighing those things up because we understand there's like a commercial need to have a stadium like the Liberty for hospitality reasons and things like that. But you do feel like there's, there's so much character in these old grounds that the, the traditional rugby fan can really take something out of it. I, did you happen to see any of the, um, uh, the the pictures of the kind of the the Alan Wynne Jones Barbarians game that they played down there. Oh, they're not sort of. So no. yes, this would have been a couple of months back. But if, if you get a chance, take take a look yeah. because again, just people like packed, um, you know, packed the place out, um, and it felt like those wonderful new, you know, kind of new rugby, um, you know, professional rugby legend meets the old school amateur era. It was a yeah, yeah it was a really a really nice moment. Yeah, and one of the things I was trying to tell through the book was kind of how rugby's evolved and changed, not necessarily all for the better. Um, and what happened, in, particularly in Welsh rugby, for example, with 
recruiting the obviously the regional teams and and how that affected you know, how how that seismic change for the for the sport, but also the t- the, the fallout from that as well. And obviously, not all of it. Some some of it maybe worked, was worked for the best. Not all of it has. Um, uh, I mean, interestingly, we, we may come on to Troke at some point, but um, oh, we will, we will. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I've just done a story again, just a story for them recently for for the Rugby Journal, which we'll come to in a bit. But how the, the how regionalisation affected uh, the Ronda, um, yeah, and their, their plans to create a regional team team for that. So for me, it was kind of part of was trying to, to explain to somebody who doesn't necessarily follow the sport week in week out, and we know that by and large, that's one of the challenges with rugby is that no one does follow the game as intensely, obviously get it for the Six Nations in the World Cup. So hopefully somebody reads it, will kind of think, oh, they'll learn something from it as well as having some knockout pictures as well. Yeah, let's 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 go on and talk about Trilorki because again, I remember being, you know, being at my nan's and, and watching this kind of almost rags to riches story in the in the 90s and it was heavily covered on BBC Wales. Uh, I think, as you mentioned in the book, you know, kind of like the precursor to the Netflix drive to survive stuff. And yeah. um it is a remarkable story, but again, a remarkable ground. And um, one thing I absolutely love about it is the train line that just right. So you could see tra- the trains running yeah. past it as they're, as they're playing, you know, as they're, as they're playing a, a, a top flight game in Wales. It's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, we kind of, I was, I was in, a, in a way in hindsight, I might've written that, that bit slightly differently um, because when I, when I kept, when I approached it and I became really fascinated by the story of obviously the dream mm. and Phil Davis and, and the Jones brothers and, um, ended up doing a far bigger piece on that for for the, for the rugby journal. The new issue has just come out and looks more into it. And part of that was to tie into the fact it's 50 years next month, I think, that Max Boyce recorded live at Treorki. Yeah, we thought well, there's a hook. There's obviously a great hook there. And then we thought, well, that's, but that's more. I looked into the story of the dream. It was just this is one of the most phenomenal stories I think I've had the, had the joy to, to write. And then caught up with Phil Davis. He we chatted for, for hours and hours. Got spoke to Eric Sykes, who's a, who's a bloke who directed the dream um, for BBC Wales, and the whole story about how that came about. Obviously, the club's been on, on a better footing now, but how they chased this, how Davis wanted to create a, a team for the Ronda, and he kind of saw the future was coming about how rugby was going to change. I think he wanted to have a merger. But I've got this right with Ponty Preed, and they just weren't weren't interested at all. Um, and I think at that time you could see why they would have pushed back against it. But he was like, "We can't. This isn't sustainable as it is right now. We can only go mm. so far. We have to keep. We have to keep evolving this." And obviously, he wasn't able to do that. And then the club almost went into oblivion. But it was just. But then set against that is this wonderful ground as well. And some of it in, in researching it was just bringing up people at the club and saying, "How would you describe describe the ground in a way that I'd probably tell it more vivid, vividly than I can." So that, that helped as well, is that everyone was really kind of wonderful in terms of coming forward and t- sharing little stories as well about, about the grounds that I wouldn't have necessarily known and you couldn't necessarily find just just, just trawling online. So, um, but I think of yeah, the Trollkey story, I, even that fact of, you know, that's where effectively that live at Trollkey is where Hymns and Aries comes from. And there's so much to it um, in just one small club. Yeah, it's, uh, and the fact that Davis and Jones found religion having been two of the most uncompromising players in the 80s, a, a team that was known for really roughhousing everybody else. And Phil talked about a specific game that they had. They played for the Ronda against, uh, I think it was Cardiff Schools, and they got beaten 66-0 and said, right, we're never going to allow that to happen to us again. They said, we can't match certain other clubs 
for their ability. So we'll find another way to another way to beat them. And that, that ended up obviously Joe, Cliff Jones, I think it was Clive Jones, ended up becoming just an atrocious reputation. The only player I think to be to have two life bans from rugby. Um, and then amongst all that was to tell. So there were so so many elements to the story, and we I was trying to condense all that into about 350 words for the yeah. book, which thankfully one of the beauties of doing a book thing like this is you end up learning all these stories and then you think, well, I can take the story somewhere else and write it a bit more long form. Amazing. Well, yeah. It, also, if you get a chance to do uh, rugby's or remarkable rugby kits, the, the Triorgi one from the 90s, again, is is yeah. just magnificent with that black, with that zebra head on it and John yeah. Smith's sponsor. It's just a beautiful, a beautiful looking, uh, beautiful looking kit. Uh, let's stick not to not to a million not a million miles away and uh, have a chat about Sardis Road. You mentioned Pontypridd there, and yeah, again, I remember watching rugby in the nineties. Feared pack, lots of cult heroes in that team, and Sardis Road was a was a damn tough place to uh, to visit. But tell me about tell me about this uh, this nickname uh, Dan's Muckhole. Yeah, let me just I'm just going to refer to the book. So we quote but some time ago. And again, one of the things I liked, I love doing about this is. That um, you're, you're allowed to sort of give a license to actually do a little bit of social history, really, and mm. tell. And I think obviously the minds are so interwoven into in, in, into various uh, towns and villages uh, within Wales. But yeah, it was known as Dan's Muckhole, which I think I've got to think what I wrote here now. So he yeah, acquired the nickname as it was built on the site of a colliery, um, a coal dram at the ronder end of the ground, not only recognises the history behind Sardis Road, but is also a tribute to the miners who gave so much to the community. The colliery's proprietor was Daniel Thomas, who was also a bare-knuckle mountain fighter, boxing under the name of Di Ponte. Um, fist fighting was illegal in Wales, so bouts were staged in the mountains and would often go on until somebody was knocked unconscious. Um, and which, is not, which is not too dissimilar from a lot of games that, uh, that took place there with that pack. You know, plenty, yeah, plenty, yeah. plenty of plenty of fist fighting and, uh, and, players, uh, and players, players knocking each other out in those days. Yeah, and I know they had a, they had a fierce, the team had a fearsome reputation back, back in the day, didn't they? Um, and yeah, so then Thomas later found religion and donated much of his wealth to local causes. And then, uh, so yeah, it became that's sort of the story behind Dan's, Dan's muckhole. But again, when you kind of approach all this stuff, I wasn't too familiar with all that. You, you know the teams, you know the names of it, the history, but to, to kind of learn that sort of side of it is, uh, is a bit I love doing, doing with something like this. Yeah, fantastic. And again, I think something that really comes across in the Welsh chapters is, and not just in the Welsh chapters actually, but is the is that element of community and how much the rugby club means more than just you know more than just it being a a team, you know, it, it being a, a real kind of centre of the the community. And I think one of the most interesting stories of that was the uh, was the Tump. Uh, which is again a, a remarkable ground and uh, and home to Cumbrian welfare and a remarkable location on top of a on top of a mountain essentially, but also uh, a remarkable legacy. And I, you know, I again, this is a story I, I didn't I didn't know anything about. Just just tell us a little bit about that um, about the, the legacy of, of that ground. Yeah, so I think um, again when I when I when I approached these grounds, we sent uh, and I could probably a bit, a bit of preamble to this was we sent a photographer called Kevin Rudge to take the shots of um, these or, or the, a series of sort of grassroots grounds in, in Wales. And Kevin then came back and then said, right, yeah, I think you should call up this chap and gave me some contacts for each of the clubs. So I did a little bit of research, and the first thing I wanted to say was that you know what why the, really behind the name of 
uh, Cambrian Welfare. And uh, the chap I spoke to was Jonathan Davis as a chairman. And then it was kind of just finding out a bit more about the context of it and just learning yeah, about the local history and, and why, I guess, to find out why ground is, is more, I said, more than the ground. And um, yeah, I think it was, I wrote in here, so a mile away from the home of Cambrian Welfare is a memorial will excuse my pronunciations by the way so I hope we get this right um, there's a memorial will and garden in, in Clenach Vale uh, that commemorates the lives of 64 miners who drive following tragedies at the local colliery in 1905 and 1906 along with another seven who died at the nearby Gorky Colliery in, 19, in 1941 um, um, so yeah so that's kind of obviously a sort of key part key part to its story um, and then it says again the ground is um the ground is at the top of a mountain, which is why it's known as the Tump, says, uh, said Jonathan Davis. Um, there wasn't really a team as such, and there were no leagues back then. But playing rugby was something uh, good for the miners to do at the weekends, um, and there's been a pitch there ever since. Um, and I think there's, there's something you mentioned in there as well about um, about kind of not play, not paying subs and, and keeping uh, and keeping rugby free, yes. and, and and that's you know that again, it's a it's a. I don't know. I suppose rugby it differs around the world, doesn't it? And you know, obviously, it has a, a reputation with England of being very tied to the public schools. Likewise, in Ireland and 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 other places, um, and other places around the world. And I guess that's something that, uh, and Scotland for that matter. And and obviously, in, in Wales, it has very much been tied to being a working class a working class sport. And uh, it was really interesting that the the way that the way that that came across, particularly with that ground and, and that club. Yeah, so I think Davis obviously, yeah, obviously they're in a socially deprived area and um, they set up a thing called a boot bank. So yeah. a lot of parents can't afford to give their kids a good pair of rugby boots. So when an older lad grows out of their pair, they put them in the boot bank for another kid to use. And it means obviously you, you can recycle that. Um, and also I think they'd only started sort of um, start the kids rugby teams and the minis and juniors about 15 years ago. It went from 27 kids on the books and they've now got 275. Um, which is quite remarkable, really. Uh, sorry, probably, but it's obviously remarkable ground, but remarkable for more more than just again, it's one of the things that's more on the ground. And I think for a lot of lot of clubs, obviously, have struggled over the past couple of years. The fallout, obviously, from from COVID, and um, even though there were obviously the rules that came in last season of not having to fill fifteen players, mm-hmm. uh, and the clubs that are likely to survive out of this are the ones that have got the, the strong minis and junior sections that have thought more about than just the Saturday. That have got the you know are making themselves something something more um, within the, within the community. Yeah, no, absolutely agree, and that is you know we again we spend a lot of time on him, you know, moaning about professional rugby and you know debating who should play number eight and all this kind of stuff. And actually, I think the the thing that we often like to come back to is the fact that it is a game that's, that's so much more than that, and and a ground is the is the center of you know it can often be the center of a community so yeah, it definitely comes across in a, in in a number of these uh, we're going to go on in a sec and talk about some of the uh uh some of the grounds that are a bit a bit further afield um and uh, kind of have a chat about some of the more uh, the slightly more obscure ones um but first we're going to take this very quick break Into the second part of the show, uh, you are listening to the Attacking Scrum. It's a special episode, and we're chatting with Ryan Herman about his new book, Remarkable Rugby Grounds. Uh, now, this is one uh, we, we've chatted about. Um, we, we've chatted about some, some interesting grounds in Wales there, and there's a few pitches in the valleys where you might expect a bit of hostility. But 
not too many of those grounds would have fighter jets and battleships at the side of them, Ryan. Um, but that's something that the the incredible Battleship Memorial Park in Mobile, Alabama um, offers. Again, the, the picture of this ground is is absolutely incredible. Just just tell us a little bit about um, about this one. Yeah, when we started researching the book and um, looking, I was trying to find this, you know more. Again, with each of these things, I've turned the page and, and seeing something, thinking, "What? What part of my part? What? What the, what the f is that?" Um, and yeah, this was kind of like it felt like one of those no, no brainers, really. That yeah. if we, as long as, as long as you could get the pictures in, that kind of helped to show that. And that's the only thing that, in certain cases, we did find some really bizarre places and bizarre places where people play rugby. We just couldn't find the pictures that were quite good enough. And I may come come on some of those later, but but yeah, Battleship Memorial. So. Um, Story behind it is um, that it's uh, there's it's basically got a series of rugby pitches, um, and there's, there's, a, there's a massive warship that literally is behind it. And they're known as obviously Battleship Rugby, um, and it's placed in Alabama. It's home to the USS Alabama warship, which uh, um, was uh, the USS was basically obviously a submarine, also a collection of uh, other aircraft, and the warship is known this big, this massive warship is known as the Mighty A. Um, and it only saw five years worth of service, uh, but was stationed in the North Atlantic to guard against possible raids from German uh, heavy ships. Um, there was a campaign; they were going to destroy it. They were going to basically, I think, pretty much sort of melt it down. And then school kids throughout the state, because it became something of real pride to to Alabamians, and was meant to be obviously was there as a kind of memorial, really, to people to those in the state who lost their lives in World War Two. So there was a massive campaign. That was run uh, throughout state, throughout the state, and kids basically gave, gave all their spare nickels and dimes, put them into collection boxes, raised nearly a hundred thousand dollars. This is back in nineteen sixty-five, so Lord knows what that, what that is now. Um, and it meant that they could they kept have a permanent home for um, for 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 the USS Alabama. Um, and now also, it's uh, that's at Memorial. It's about Station Front Memorial Park, and the team that plays their battleship. Um, RFC also holds a tournament there, the, the Battleship Rugby Invitational, um, and that's been going what since about 1980, I think it is, uh, and has become you know, this, this massive tournament that brings in brings in teams from from all across across America. It's become a real staple, I guess, in American grassroots rugby. Fantastic, yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely one that's that's added to the list. I was fascinated by that because Mobile, Alabama. Uh, I was I was racking my brains. I was like I was like, why does that name ring a ring a bell? Because Bob Dylan wrote a song called uh, called uh, "Stuck Inside a Mobile" with the Memphis Blues again, and I had to yeah. Google it. I was like, surely <laughs> yeah, this is the same yeah. place, and it and it is, yeah. So um so yeah, it's uh, um uh, interesting that that there's a, a nice uh, Bob Dylan rugby link, which I wasn't uh, I wasn't anticipating. Yeah, uh, Mobile's I think if you Mobile was the first city, the first place ever hosted Mardi Gras. Um, oh, was that right? Back in seventeen oh three, yeah. So yeah, part of the doing this is that I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm interested in history. I studied history and politics at uni, um, and so it kind of allows me to be a bit self-indulgent, and in that I can delve into histories of places and kind of think because there's only so much you want. You can say, okay, this ground has this capacity, and this team plays there, mm. and it's located here. But you want to tell, hopefully, you tell a far, you're trying to tell a far richer story than that, and hopefully, somebody gets something and says. I didn't know that. I, I, I hadn't read that. I would have known this otherwise. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I think that what comes across in the book as well, it's a really good mix because you've got those eye-catching, stunning photos, but there's the interesting stories that go behind it as well that I guess, you know, just that that it's that combination that, that makes them uh, all the more remarkable. Bringing it up to a, a very modern, uh, or a couple of modern stadia now, and I want to head over the, uh, over the channel to uh, to Paris and La Défense Arena, which is the, the home to Racing 92. Uh, let's settle this one. Is it a rugby stadium or is it a nightclub? Uh, <laughs> well, it's going to be a swimming pool for the for the Olympics. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, they're going to convert it into. Um, let me just check. Where I, I have to remember what I wrote, but yeah, it's um, it's multi-use stadium. Uh, yeah, it kind of looks more like a. It feels like it's more suited to being the, big, the biggest nightclub in the world. Um, yeah, yeah bear, bear with me one second while I, while I find what I originally wrote on this. Um, but yeah, it's quite quite again. I think the joy of doing this is trying to find these places which are quite unlike anything else. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I kind of think it's one of those where do you, do you think, is this kind of a bit gimmicky uh, that we're playing rugby indoors? Um, but I think there's a line, I use the sign of commentary from Nick Mullins, where he just says, if, you haven't been, if, you, if you've been here, you already know. And if you haven't, then you have to add it to your bucket list. And he, you know, I think everyone who's been there, it's, it's quite, a, quite an extraordinary experience going to watch a rugby match in, 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 indoors. And I guess... You could like it to play, I guess, if you put the roof over the Principality. But this is, I think it's probably quite a, a sort of, not necessarily a great example. It's the nearest I can think of. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And actually, it's funny the, the use of the term bucket list, because the first time I watched the game on telly there and saw, you know, and saw just like the, the party atmosphere and stuff inside uh, inside the place, I thought... I, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to make a, a list of a bucket list of rugby grounds that I need that I need to visit. Now, obviously, this has helped to bulk that out to uh, to, to tons and tons of them now. But and, and uh, yeah, there's a tiny percentage of them in the book that I actually have visited. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's something amazing about it. It feels like a real shame it's not hosting a game at the World Cup because yeah, yeah. it would be a great thing to to show that you know to show the the casual rugby fan that this amazing place exists. Yeah, and I think yeah, as you say, I think it's quite more people, but will know probably know about it because the Olympics next year. So yeah, I think what what will happen is they'll, they'll basically convert it from a they can convert it from a rugby pitch into a concert venue. I think the first concert held there was a Rolling Stones, not a bad way to start. Hmm. Um, but yeah, they, they take about eleven hours, and then I'm assuming it probably could take significantly longer to put in two Olympic size sort of swimming pools. But but yeah, the fact they can do that is is quite is 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 is, uh, is quite stunning, really. Yeah, that is absolutely amazing. But yeah, definitely one. And, and do you know what I like about it as well is there's actually I'm not a massive fan of like music being pumped into a rugby ground. You know, the kind of because often it's to mask the fact that there's not a great atmosphere anyway. But when you get it right, as you you know, if you watch the uh, the South Africa Island game the other night and the yeah. the crowd singing along to Zombie and stuff, and it just worked. You know, you just got the sense that something was really happening there. And to a lesser extent, whenever you watch a, a home game, Racing 92, it feels like there's, it, it's, you're right, it could feel gimmicky, but it doesn't because it's so different to all the other ones that just play in, you know, bloody Uptown Funk and and Sweet Caroline and all the same songs get played at every different ground. It's got a real a real sense of identity, you feel. Yeah, yeah. And I think the story behind it, about how, how the owner, obviously Jackie Lorenzetti, brought Racing 92 to the ground and, uh, Eve de Manuel, which was wonderful, was wonderful old ground, but nobody was turning up to watch it. Mm. Um, the, the, the team was was pretty much dying, um, and uh, all the challenges that he also and he had to try and overcome to get this place built 
Um, the fact that, you know, it's t- they, they kick off for the first thing. I think there was a ro- Rolling Stones. Um, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's one of those things where I kind of feel like uh, if you wanted, it, it, yeah, it's, it's probably a, bu- a bucket list place that you think, I would, I'd love to, there's places around the world you'd like to see a game of rugby just because you say, I've been there. That would yeah. certainly have to be one of them. Yeah, 100%. And uh, looking at one of the one of the grounds that does host it, or has, it's been hosting games throughout the Rugby World Cup. In fact, the, the scene of Wales's thriller against uh, against Fiji is uh, the Mahmoud Ad- Atlantique, again, excuse my pronunciation, uh, in Bordeaux. Uh, but that is one magnificent looking stadium. Tell us about that ground and and kind of in particular the the architects behind it. Yes, yeah, so, so Herzog de, and Demuron are kind of this, this, this group, this very famous sort of architectural firm. And some of the stadiums, other stadiums they've done at the Allianz Arena in Munich and the National Stadium or the Bird's Nest in uh, in Beijing. Um, and I make a reference to to a, a ground they did design uh, in Portsmouth. For, and this, if you look at it, and years ago I wrote a piece for, for 442 and it was about the greatest, the, the greatest grounds that never got built. Um, wow, yeah. And it was about these really, really outlandish things that they did a whole series about the hundred. I think they did 101 greatest grounds, and I did a sort of offshoot of that. And this design, this stadium, which was all the more nuts because Portsmouth was imploding; it's financially going right. to the wall. And meanwhile, they're commissioning architects, these, these world famous architects, to design a stadium that was no way on earth. It was they couldn't get built anyway because they wanted to build it right next to a naval. Um, Shipyard, so it couldn't have got done anyway. For I think for reasons of national security, so it was going. To, it was, but, but the whole thing was utterly bonkers. But yeah, um, well, I think it's 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 unlike. It's an amazing stadium. Literally, when I, when I, I actually chatted to a couple of friends who are Welsh um, football fans who went over there for the Euros, and I said, "What was the experience like going into the ground? Just to give me a sense of what it's like." And I said, "It feels like almost two grounds that you've got this mm. amazing spectacular." and if it's outside it feels more like a bowl on the inside um so yeah quite unlike anything else in the world and there was what i was researching i found this great quote from this uh this chap called Kristen caps who's a, a, a journalist based in washington and i think occasionally writes about architecture and he says he described it as so this stadium this gorgeous artful building it's nowhere near washington dc it's a nouveau stade de bordeaux whole ocean a whole ocean away in bordeaux france what went wrong, DC? Why can't we have nice things? At a glance, it looks like a juiced up, juiced up John F. Kennedy Center for the performing arts. And yeah, it's unlike, I mean, it's a sports stadium, but it could, it could just be a, a, a sort of a wonderful art installation or something like that. Yeah, it's, it is amazing. And for some reason, I didn't, I, yeah, I didn't notice it, like watching the coverage of the Euros, uh, whatever, however many years ago, seven, seven, eight years ago now. And uh, and, and yeah, I just noticed it on the telly the other night and thought, my God, that is just such a striking, a striking yeah. ground. And yeah, like you say, I, I can see why you'd see that as two, as two, as two different stadia. Um, also, I was going to ask you as well, like, you know, in the era of identikit stadiums, is it possible to build a remarkable ground without breaking the bank? Uh, yeah, and I'm, try, I'm, trying, actually, I'm trying to think of some of examples of something that's done, done it relatively inexpensive. I'm not sure how much the Map Atlantic costs. Um, mm. I mean, actually, thinking about the principality, you think back to what it cost. Actually, it was relatively cheap. Um, so, yeah, compared to Wembley that followed shortly after, that yeah. went monstrously over budget and didn't have a roof. You know, it, it it was kind of like the blueprint of the time of of how to build a of how to build a you know a a, a striking modern fit for purpose stadium. Yeah, and I'm trying I'm trying to think of another example of where where that's 
happen. I mean, unfortunately, I suppose Tottenham. I suppose Tottenham. It would be would be one of late that's, yeah, that's they, kind of. They went over budget in the end. It's, a, it's day, an amazing yeah. ground, and it's, I've been there. And um, what I love about it, in a, in a way, not it's, it kind of feels like a weird comparison, but the way the Prince of Price just appears, you literally mm. turn a straight corner, and so, so it's there. Um, that's the wonderful thing about Spurs Stadium. Obviously, they've kept it in the, in the place, literally next door to, to White Hart Lane. They built on top of that. But if you walk down uh, White Hart Lane, the, the road from the from the station to the to the ground, and suddenly you turn the road, it's like this this huge thing appears. Um, and the fact they've done it in a really urban area. Um, really yeah, really walking down the Seven yeah. Sisters Road, you know, is yeah. is proper, uh, you know, proper urban London, isn't it? And then you're yeah. you're right, this kind of really modern, um, yeah, modern feat of architecture it is yeah and again it doesn't look like all other all other stadium you know like the the milton Keynes riverside you yeah. know they, they all kind of look, look a bit like lego stadia really yeah there's, there's you're right there's this era of stadiums that were built probably sort of early 2000s and they all i think i'll probably put pride park into that as you yeah. said riverside um they all kind of somewhere between 20 and thirty thousand, and they're all fine um but they're all kind of yeah they kind of one kind of blends the other and the only thing that distinguishes them is the, is the colours but it all feels yeah. like they all feel the same and I think the problem obviously with the bowl one of the things that I think is really important to a ground and where probably the Tottenham ground's got it right and where maybe Arsenal didn't for example and I know we're getting off on a football tangent but it's having that focal point having an end um, mm. where that home support is and that where it generates that generates the atmosphere and that's important for, for any ground really be it, be it rugby or football yeah, that's true, actually. And I, I kind of feel like that's something that um, that the millennium has lost in recent years is that it does feel quite disparate. And there's, I, I mean, I've spoken about this. I, I think it's probably a completely madcap idea, but I love the idea of there being like a, a singing end, you know, an end that is just, um, ideally the, the tickets be a bit cheaper. Ideally it'd be safe standing in there. And you would, and that's where the, the noise the noise emanates from and the and you know the rest of the place would follow and I'd love to I, I, I have no idea there's probably a million reasons why the logistics that wouldn't work but I'd love to see the WRU kind of get hold of something and and talk to fans and see what they want out of the match day experience and you look at uh, you know Gelsey I know you we're, we're talking about football quite a bit here but again I think it's a gripe of people who follow the football and the rugby in Wales that the, the FAW has got it so right in terms of how of what a match day experience can be like. And again, you know, largely speaking, that the Cardiff City Stadium is a pretty identical Lego stadium. But yeah. on international nights, that is absolutely, you know, and, and for big Cardiff games and whatever, I don't want to piss off Cardiff fans, but it, you know, when, when it when it when it hits the mark, it is an absolutely rocking place to be. And I just, yeah, I would love to see how you could do that at a stadium like the Millennium on on days that isn't just, you know, isn't just England, Wales or a Grand Slam decider or something like that. Well, fun, 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 one of the grounds that didn't make it um, into the cut and, and probably segues nice, nicely into this, um, I, I really wanted to use it, but there was a politics behind why I couldn't. So back in 2017, um, HOK as it was back then, uh, which is now Populous, they got four... They come up with a bit of a concept. So it was a bit of a gimmick, um, but actually, I w- we wanted to get it in there because it looked a- a- otherworldly. Again, they, they created basically what would be the stadium of the future. So, what would what would you have if you had the ideal rugby stadium? Mm. And they got four players along. Um, let me just check the names that they had. So, Jamie Roberts was one. Um, Tim Visser was another. I think they got who was it? James Horwell, um, the Aussie, was there, and Danny Kerr. So, all Harlequins players at the time, then. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, and I'm sure no doubt HOK probably had some some deal going on. Yeah. Uh, I brung them up. I rang up Poplar saying, "Can we use the images of this?" They said because it was HOK had designed it. There's still so there was some kind of weird. Uh, they didn't have the intellectual property rights. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that was a bit frustrating. But one of the things that that the care said was why the reason why I love the principality was the drive into into the stadium where you drive for mm. the city and you've got the atmosphere and the fans are giving you giving you some as well. Uh, but what he also, I think, I'm sure it was him who suggested. It, said what they would, what he'd love to see was a safe standing area that was introduced between 22 and the try line, and he said that would increase the atmosphere. And also, yeah. with group of fans in thinking about this as we're talking about it now, you could reduce those prices, get more people in, and it would just feel they'd be right close to the place. You, it enhances the atmosphere of the game, but also, yeah, it, I think that the, I can't see why the. It seems like a win-win really, as an idea. And it's kind of like, that was an idea that was mentioned six years ago. But actually, as we're talking about it now, it feels like something that maybe they should consider. Yeah, well, again, if anyone from the WIU is listening and wants to pay me and Ryan a, a small to very large consultancy fee, we'd be, uh, we'd be happy to uh, happy to, to lend them that idea. Um, yeah, let's talk about some of the ones that didn't um, that didn't make the cut then. What was on the the long list of, of other grounds that um, that didn't make it for one reason or another? Yeah, so there was. I mentioned it in the book, and we're talking as we talk about the World Cup. There was a grad stand, the Grand, so the Grand Stand, Risa Rangis, which was, I think, was I, I sort of explored a bit more. And I said this piece of uh, another piece I've written following on from the book, and this was a ground that was meant that was the the French uh, Rugby Federation had put all their energies behind back in 2013. I think the, the designs were initially unveiled, and they said it would cost probably around 350 million euros, and then Bernard Laporte came in in 2016 and part of his campaign pitch was to scrap the idea. Um, he was he was dead set against it. And it, it, when you look at the designs, of, of, everything looks wonderful in CGI anyway, but, and it doesn't necessarily look as great in reality, but I think as a comparison, it felt like some of the elements of it, certainly similar to the, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, there was going to be, it was going to be like the, 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 the last word in, in rugby grounds, obviously purpose-built stadium purely for French rugby. Um, but Laporte came in, scrapped the idea, and actually, for all the bad things that Laporte has done, and all the awful things, and obviously, you know, he's been found to be a, mm. a, a wholly corrupt person. But he, he probably he saved the French rugby French rugby federation from probably spending what would have been the thick end of a billion in the end. If you think about the cost, which just kept going up and up and up, all these big projects, so often they go massively over budget. Mm. French rugby now is currently turning over a massive profit, the absolute polar opposite of the RFU, um, has, has got through COVID, didn't have any of those problems. Had they built that stadium, those problems would have, probably would have been there. Um, so it could have ended up becoming a bit of an albatross for them. Um, so we thought that was a really fascinating story. Um, there was another place, uh, Maimonides Park, which I actually wrote the copy for. We just couldn't find the pictures that were good enough. And this is a place where Coney, was basically where Coney Island theme park is in, in New no York. No way. Yeah. So you've got the whole theme park as the backdrop for the rugby, which is basically, it's a a baseball park. And they used New York rugby, stayed there for about two years um, to play play major league rugby. And the story behind it was that uh, originally, obviously it was this, the land was home to a steeplechase park. So a big theme park there. And it was Fred Trump that bought the land back in, I think maybe the 1960s it might've been. 
And before, I think before they wanted to make the people had campaigned to make that listed building. It was a, it was a place of, of, a, of obviously cultural significance. Hmm. And a few before they could get their application in, Trump had bought the land and he had showgirls. He gave out bricks to showgirls to give out to people to throw at the stained glass windows to smash them. And so it would have basically destroyed and not and any any idea of basically preserving this place um, as getting it maybe given listed status. They, it wasn't possible. So um, I think I described it as literally a, an act of cultural vandalism. And little Donald was watching, was apparently watching on while all this happened. Uh, so he kind of paid, part of me wondered what if any effect that may have had on his on his psyche. But then obviously went back there. Did they eventually built a baseball uh, park there? And yeah, for two years they played rugby. We had these, so we really wanted to get these shots. Of these people playing of New York playing rugby with literally this massive Ferris wheel in the background and big amazing. But we just couldn't find the pictures that were quite good enough. And the challenge with, with a book like this is that you can look at something on the internet and it looks great, but mm. the quality often isn't good enough for print. So yeah, that was it was a frustration that we couldn't get that. And the other one, put out four or five more, but another one which is currently being built being built right now is the Takaha State, or not being built, it will be built. It's one for the future, is the Takaha Stadium in Christchurch. Um so that's that's one that's just coming down the road. And that looks like an, an amazing stadium. There was another one in the north of England. I think it was Border Park. We just, again, we couldn't find the pictures. I think it's just been described as the most remote ground in England. That you kind of, it's, it's 10 miles before you can get even a signal on your phone. It's, it's that, that kind of remote. And it's also, there's amazing history behind it. But if the pictures weren't quite up to scratch, um, we just we just couldn't put them in. Yeah, absolutely. And um I was going to ask you as well, because obviously, you know, there's 80 different stadiums there in various remote parts. Of how many have you How many have you been to? Oh, that's a good question. So originally, I, 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 I think the ones in the UK, most of the ones in the, in the UK, but it's, 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 yeah, I mean, I did, funnily enough, I originally wrote an intro for the book and we, myself and Frank argued about it. And I said, well, I can't say I've been to all these grounds because yeah. otherwise I would have run up the biggest expenses bill and I think in, the, in the history of publishing. <laughs> so, and some of the grounds that actually, fortunately I've been to like Marseille, I actually went to um, uh, to see football. So some of them have seen as football matches. Yeah. Uh, so it's all the kind of the major, the European ones, but pff, out the 80, and some of the ones we reference um, at the end, we actually do mention a couple of the, the grounds. I think we mentioned, we referenced Barcelona, which obviously was used for a um, a Champions Cup match. I think they pulled in 92,000 people for that. The Coliseum in LA, mm-hmm. um, there was, who, who else was there? I, I deliberately didn't want to put in Wembley, although, we, although in hindsight, I kind of, well, I thought maybe we should have put in Croke Park. Um, oh, do you know what? I think, uh, again, I, I, that's a big regret that I never went to watch a, a game of rugby yeah. there because, again, you could just hear the noise on telly, particularly that England game in 07, I want to say. And yeah. uh, I think that was the first time England, you know, obviously the the cultural significance of an English side playing in a GAA stadium and God save the Queen and all that. And it was just a really an insanely electric atmosphere just coming through on the on the telly you know i can only imagine what that was like there on the day yeah i, I said i think there was, a, there was a two or three that actually in hindsight i think i, I would love to have got in and one actually really really, really thought two we thought about afterwards and we got to print by that point and it was like we can't hold the presses and one was gibraltar because of it's mm. like when i saw a most funny enough i was meant to go out there for again for rugby journal not that long ago and it clashed with something I, I, for me, I couldn't do it because of a, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd important engagement. But um, 
it's looks where it's set and you've got the big rock just as, as a backdrop to it. Um, it's quite an, an extraordinary setting for it. And I think Andorra as well, um, which I just I, I overlooked. Funny enough, we looked at Andorra for, for the football grounds book. We didn't put that in. Um, and then I've, I should have actually put two and two together thinking in some cases, these things, these grounds would double up and they would actually be used for, for rugby as well, which is, um, again, the case for the the ground in Easter Island and Hangaroa, which is essentially a multi-use and is used yeah. for both, both football and rugby. So, um, so yeah, so, uh, that's, that was a uh, Croke Park was one. I said in, in hindsight, we possibly we, we possibly could have got that in, but there's always that thing of that you kind of you see you, you end up there's always something after you've done some something like this. Yeah, think, of course. Yeah, I wish I'd done that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you if you need uh, the Gibraltar stuff's interesting. If you need to speak to a Gibraltar Rugby International, weirdly, I'm I'm supposed to be having a meeting with one tomorrow about yeah. nothing to do with rugby. It just he just happens to have played rugby for uh, for <laughs> Gibraltar. So yeah, if you need a if you if you need a quote on that, um, uh, let me know. Um, but it's been fascinating to chat to you, Ryan. And and I say, I really, really enjoyed the book. And it's you know again one that our listeners will will really enjoy because there's so many great stories and, and brilliant imagery within there as well. What's the best way to uh, to get hold of a copy? Well, I guess the usual the usual way, the, the, the corporate giant, the corporate beast that is Amazon. Um, so that's probably that's probably the, the easiest, simplest way. And um, and yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I hope one, one, one ambition for the book is that ultimately it's the kind of, we kind of thought it's kind of, one of these things that hopefully should serve as a, a good Christmas present for the rugby yeah. fan in your life. Um, and if I can do one thing, which is, have somebody bury their head in a book in Christmas Day so they don't have to talk to the in-laws or have to watch EastEnders, <laughs> then it's kind of like, I feel that's my, my, my Christmas gift to the world. Job done. Well, look, I'll um, I, I'll keep I'll keep my copy and do it and, and do exactly that with it. And even even though it's not a Christmas gift, uh, Ryan, it's been brilliant chatting to you. Uh, really, really, uh, yeah, really enjoyed uh, taking a trawl down some of these uh, remarkable grounds. And uh, and yeah, if you uh, if you're interested in this kind of thing, which I'm guessing you will be, listeners, if you've sat through 49 minutes of me whispering <laughs> on about it, um, then yeah, make sure you grab yourself a copy. Uh, lots more rugby content coming up from us this week. Uh, as you will know, if you listen regularly myself and Dan are heading out to Nantes on Friday we're going to be doing a live show uh, ahead of the game which will be very exciting um quite nice going to Nantes knowing that Wales won't be dumped out in the group stages unlike 16 years ago and uh yeah lots of lots more stuff will be coming uh, over from there so make sure you subscribe follow uh, on wherever you listen to your podcasts and uh, yeah if you've if you've enjoyed it make sure you drop us a review on Apple Podcasts right we'll be back to chat rugby with you very very soon thanks for listening Thanks, Jed. Podcast Network.